0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for a great season of For Let Investigates. We'll be back for season two in October of 2021 with many more great guests within law enforcement. I want to thank the many heroes who were guests on our show. If you missed any of our shows, you can go back and listen to all of them anytime on your favorite podcast app or head over to our website at www.fcis.com. LLC.com. The purpose of our show is to give you insight in what our law enforcement people do every day for our community and our country. Here is one of the great interviews in case you missed it. See you in October. Well, hello, everyone. I want to welcome you to uh, my podcast, For Letta Investigates. I'm honored today to have our next guest. His name is Robert Almonte. He's a former uh, deputy chief of the El Paso, Texas police department. He had been there for at least 25 years. Uh, he worked, he was a commander in the uh, narcotics unit. So uh, as most people are aware that, you know, El Paso is on the border and our border every day at, at this point is being challenged. And um, it, it had always been a challenge as far as I, I know and working when I was with DEA. So, Robert, I want to welcome you to our show.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. I I really appreciate it, and it truly is an honor. Thank you.
0: And Robert, you've literally become an expert on the Mexican cartels and their patron saints, and I know you travel throughout the United States uh, training law enforcement. So let's let's talk a little bit about uh, your career uh, and how you started in law enforcement.
1: Yeah, sure, sure thing, uh, Larry. I started my career uh, with the El Paso Police Department in uh, 1978, graduated from the Academy and uh, was great uh, patrol. And I worked uh, patrol ship work uh, day, evening, and great rotating uh, shifts. And uh, I worked in an area that was uh, really, really busy, uh, a lot of crime close to the border. And, uh, I was thankful for that. And the reason I was thankful for that was because I really learned a lot. I learned math. I learned a lot. I like to think I grew up in the El Paso police department and talk about culture, Chuck, when I put that uniform on, started working in the street. So I, uh, I grew up in the police department and then 1981, I was selected to go to the department tactical unit. And that's where we, uh, uh, we're a plainclothes unit. We did a lot of different things. We did uh, dignitary protection. We worked with Secret Service when we had the president, vice president coming in into town. Uh, we also were the riot control team for the El Paso Police Department. When we weren't doing that, we were focusing on on in-progress crimes, uh, catching burglars and and convenience store uh, robbers in, in in the act. So I did that. Uh, For a few years learned a lot there and then 1985 promoted to a detective and uh, right off the promotional list went straight to narcotics, so uh, We had no formal training uh, back there and they didn't send me to a school. They just uh, Put me up with put me together with a a partner who by the way had only been there a few months himself So it was OJT and I don't recommend that to anyone anymore. It was was really OJT, but uh, you know, we learned, we learned fast, and then we started going to some uh, uh, training conferences, uh, the, the Texas Narcotic Offices Association's uh, conference, and started learning more. So, got to work uh, a lot of interesting cases, started off uh, like uh, any narc wanting to look like a narc, I guess, <laughs> it was growing the hair long and the beard and looking like I hadn't taken a bath, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, so, I was buying a lot of street-level stuff there, mainly heroin and cocaine. And then uh, after a few years there, then you know, started developing better informants, uh, cut my hair, shaved, started taking a bath, and uh, before you know it, I was working, uh, I was working bigger deals, uh, you know, doing buy busts and doing uh, reversals, and a lot of it with, with my good friends in the DEA office there in uh, in El Paso, and uh, really had a, a lot of fun doing that. And uh, and actually, I, I found myself staying there. Uh, Forever, I really did, and uh, I remember my my lieutenant walked into my little cubicle and said, "Hey, you're gonna take the sergeant test." I go, "Now, nah, why do I want to do that? I'm perfectly happy here." And then he told me he told me something that that really hit me. He said, "You know, Robert, don't don't let what he said, Don't let your job interfere with your career." And then, and then he said, "You know, you get promoted, you can always come back." And your experience will make you a better supervisor here. So because of that, I took the test, promoted the sergeant. I went to a, a police regional command, and I was there maybe nine months in uh, in uniform as a chief sergeant. Then the captain selected me to form the uh, station's first impact team, again, focusing on, on in-progress crimes. And then... Uh, a few months later, they sent me back to narcotics as a sergeant. I oversaw the, uh, where I was a sergeant in the street crime unit and the major crime unit. Then I promoted to lieutenant, went back to patrol for 13 months, and back to narcotics as a narcotic commander for about seven years. And then uh, I was the, uh, got promoted to captain. I oversaw directed investigation division, which was a narcotic guy, the gang guy, the homicide guy, crime scene uh, unit, repeat offender program. And the last three years of my career, I was the deputy chief in charge of the Major Crime Bureau, which is basically all of the investigators. Uh, I had about 300 people under me. And then uh, I retired, uh, and that was my uh, El Paso career. I was also very involved in the Texas Narcotic Officers Association. Eventually, I became president for three different times as president. I was also their executive director. I was also uh, vice president for the National Narcotic Officers Association Coalition. So you can see um, the working uh, dope drugs have been in my, uh, my right. blood, and uh, still, I'm a- actually still doing that.
0: Right. So let's talk a little bit about um, the drug trafficking issues around the border since you sort of grew up down that way in terms of the crime and seeing how things have changed. Um, you know, back when you started working narcotics, and seeing the drugs come across from Mexico. What what changes have you seen from then up to where we're at today?
1: Yeah, I think the, the biggest change is going to be in uh, with the, uh, the technology. We did, a, we did a lot of cases on the border, and that involved uh, crossover, doing control crossovers, uh, of course working with uh, U.S. Customs, Border Patrol, and DEA. Mm-hmm. and then following the lowest stash houses. But back then, uh, they used walkie-talkies. I'll tell you they, the, the lookout. They had lookouts They used walkie-talkies. But today, um, they're more sophisticated. Um, they, have, uh, they have cell phones. They have other modes of communication. More sophisticated. There's more of them. There's more cartel activity now than when I was working drugs. And actually, the, the the drug coming across the border, uh, most of the time was going to be uh, marijuana. And, right. and now that changed a lot because of the legalization issue here. Now they're dealing with uh, things that are much more dangerous to the law enforcement officer. I'm talking about fentanyl. They come in contact sure. with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that can kill the officer. So I right. think things have changed in, in many ways.
0: So the fentanyl problem, obviously, is is probably one of the... Biggest problems I think this country is facing right now, because we have a Chinese uh, involvement in, in the fentanyl with the Mexican cartel traffickers, and as I know that the Chinese are also laundering money for the cartels. So were, were you able to see that type of uh, issues going on with any of the, uh, uh, the Chinese traffickers tied in with the uh, Mexican cartels?
1: Yeah, actually, the Chinese have been tied in with the cartels for many, many years now. Right. Their involvement has, has increased uh, uh, quite a bit, uh, especially recently. But the the, the Chinese uh, criminal working with the cartels, a lot of them are in, actually in Mexico and uh, they run these uh, businesses, so-called on the side. Uh, but a lot of them are directly involved with the cartels, and they've been doing that for a long time now. Uh, regarding the issue of fentanyl, I agree with you uh, 100%. I, I think that's the biggest threat to our country right now. We're losing about 100,000 people a year due to these uh, overdoses on uh, fentanyl, oxy, oxycodone, on these opioids. You know, these, uh, these uh, little blue pills that come across the, the border, a lot of them, if not most of them, contain about 1.8 milligrams of fentanyl. It only takes you 2.2 2 milligrams uh, to kill you. So um, until we get a handle on this situation, uh, the bottom line, you're going to see more people, uh, dying in our, in our country. Uh, over here, uh, speaking about the El Paso border. I did an interview on, on Fox, uh, and Friends uh, about a month ago, and they had, uh, they first interviewed the, uh, DEA, uh, fact out of El Paso, uh, Kyle Williamson, and, and I know him. He's a friend of mine. And he was talking about record amounts of, of drugs being seized there in the El Paso area, fentanyl, uh, meth, uh, cocaine. When I when it was my turn to speak, I say, you know, that's a lot of drugs. But consider that's what they see. Consider how much actually made it across right. uh, to other cities uh, in, in the United States. So that is our, our, our biggest threat. The other problem, Larry, is that. Uh, the current situation, uh, and I'm so happy to finally hear the president call it a crisis. It's been a crisis for a while, and it just it just irks me how they refuse to call it what it is, and it is a crisis. And our our agents, uh, DEA, our uh, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, HSI, all of them working the border are overwhelmed. They're understaffed, uh, and they need help, and they and they need it now. So I'm hoping your viewers listening, uh, you know, will will put pressure on the representative to send some help because uh, they are quite frankly overwhelmed I'm, and border patrol. I, what I'm doing is uh, going down to the border area uh, to do ride-alongs and with the officers and get a, a sense of what's going on in the border. Matter of fact, tomorrow I'm leaving for Laredo and I'm going to be uh, riding along working with the Webb County Sheriff's Department, uh, probably going on some narcotic search warrant, stuff like that, and and uh, maybe hopefully talking to our border patrol agents. But I did a ride-along a a couple of weeks ago in Kingsville, Texas. And uh, there are a few days and we get a call or the officers get a call, I'm with them, on uh, about six uh, illegal aliens jumping off the train. And uh, the residents call in. Well, the officers have to respond so you don't know, because you don't know who these people are, you don't know who they're armed. The next thing that came over the radio was that Nobody from Border Patrol is available. That station, Border Patrol station in Kingsville, is a 300-man station, and nobody was available. You know why nobody was available? Because they're too busy babysitting. Yeah. They're not spending time where they should be. They're babysitting.
0: Yeah.
1: Eventually, a couple of agents did show up, but... Uh, I mean, I'm going in a, probably a different direction than
0: no, that's we first okay. started,
1: but uh, I mean that, that that that's what I'm seeing on the border. And again, I'm I'm gonna I'm sure I'm gonna see the same thing uh, 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 tomorrow when I go down to uh Varedo. And and I think it's important for me, especially teaching this class, uh, that I uh, stay on top of it, uh, what's going on there, and that I can only do that by hanging out by uh, hanging out with our heroes that are actually on the. On the front line, they actually actually are on ground zero when it comes to Mexican right. cartel uh, activity.
0: Well, it's pretty much been the standard. I know in my career in law enforcement, you know, some we 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 try to remain apolitical, not get involved in politics, but just tell it like it is, tell the reality, tell the truth of yeah. what's actually taking place in our country and what's actually taking place on our border. I mean. You can cut it and slice it any ways, but until you talk to the men and women that work that border every day, nobody really knows what's going on. And now we see it firsthand. And I think and I hope that this administration will do something about it instead of ignoring it. But we can't keep continuing to ignore this issue because it's not just about you know these children being left alone. It's also the increase of uh, drug smuggling. Uh, and and so many other things that they're doing uh, with these with these children down there, uh, you know, ex, ex, you know, really taking advantage of the children, exploiting them. The cartels are exploiting them for sex trafficking and so on. So that to me is a is another big issue down there. So let's talk a little bit, um, Robert, about um, you. You became uh, you were eventually. Uh, appointed by uh, President Obama in uh, 2010, and you served as the U.S. Marshal for the Western District of Texas, and you were there for about six years. And, you know, I always give kudos to the U.S. Marshals because a lot of times people just don't realize what the Marshals do uh, in in a lot of sense and the risk and dangers that they face as well. And I've had the opportunity to work with uh, some of the deputies in in my fugitive cases, and they and I can tell you, they were dedicated and they did an outstanding job. So let's talk a little bit about uh, you becoming the the U.S. Marshal. Yeah, no,
1: absolutely, and and you know, it, it truly was uh, an honor, and and it was an honor that I was I was uh, not expecting. Uh, I, I didn't look for it actually was on my way to, I believe, Seattle uh, to teach a class, and uh, I'm at the airport in Phoenix when my phone rings, and it's, uh, it's the chief of staff for Congressman Sylvester Reyes, and he uh, tells me that uh, congressman wants to recommend me to the president as a U.S. marshal for the Western District of Texas, and he asked if I was interested. Well, at first, I thought it was a joke,
0: right.
1: and then we realized, uh, you know, it is. So I said, "Oh, absolutely, I'm interested." And and I said, "You know, uh, even if I don't get it, I really appreciate the consideration from the congressman." And he said, "No, no, you don't understand. We're we're going to get you in there." Sure enough, um, the congressman, with help and support from other other congressmen, including uh, especially including uh, Henry Cuellar, uh, they were able to uh, get the uh, senators to support me, especially uh, Senator Cornyn, who has always been a big supporter of, of mine when he was a Texas attorney general and I was overseeing the gang unit. He'd go to El Paso, so very pro law enforcement. Apparently he, he uh, thought a lot of me and, and uh, endorsed me, actually endorsed me on his website. Uh, so um, at the, uh went through the, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee. I didn't have to be there and then they forwarded my nomination Uh, to the floor and I received unanimous confirmation and then shortly thereafter uh, sworn in. And and that was just an incredible, incredible experience that I'll I'll never uh, forget. And then it was time to get to work. So the main office uh, for the Western District of Texas is uh, San Antonio, but we also have the the district also includes offices in Austin, Waco, Texas, Del Rio, uh, Texas, Alpine, Texas, Midland, Texas, uh, Becos, Texas, and El Paso, Texas. So it's a huge area. And, uh, I hit the ground running, visited all these offices. And, uh, and you're right. I I got to see firsthand the outstanding work uh, done by many of these, uh, deputy marshals, especially when it comes to finding somebody, tracking some, some people wanted fugitive and taking them, taking them off the streets. And I'm very proud that, uh, that we were able to, uh, put together some uh, major roundup operation going after people that had outstanding uh, warrants, and and the benefit of doing that is, well, first of all, these people are wanted. They, you need to, you know, they need to answer for their crime. They need to answer for that warrant. So we need to place them red under arrest. But uh, uh, another thing that happens, these people, many of them are just career criminals. That's all they're doing is they're committing crime. So. When we take them off the street, well, those results in less crime because they're not out there committing these crimes. So uh, I was very uh, proactive. And you have some marshals that'll, you know, sit back and, and just let things happen, but uh, I've never been that kind of person. I say we're gonna, we're gonna really, you know, do more. Not that you're not doing anything, but we're gonna do more. And I've always believed that we can always do more. So the uh, deputy marshals is involved in, in many, many high profile cases. Um, and then I, I really was happy that we could assist our, our state and local agency when they had a, uh, a suspect wanted for murder in Mexico and, and end up fleeing to Mexico. And many, many times we were able to work with our counterparts uh, in Mexico to uh, locate them, arrest them, and, and have them extradited. Uh, back to answer for their, their, those charges. So, so many things uh, involved with the uh, with the marshals' thirds and then also going after the uh, uh, sex uh, offenders and forcing the Adam Walks Act. That was that was also high on on our list, taking these sex offenders uh, off the streets.
0: Right. So, uh, I know you spent six years uh, working in the marshals. So, how did it come about where? You put everything together, of course, based on all of your experience and training, and you started, I guess, for the lack of a better word, developing a profile on what the Mexican cartels felt that they had some outside protection from law enforcement. Tell us a little bit about that and how that came about.
1: Yeah, well, actually it's uh I think it's kind of a funny story, but it, it, that all started when I was a narcotic detective in El Paso and uh, you know, we would execute search warrants on on a lot of heroin, street level heroin dealers, And I remember uh we would go into the homes on a search warrant, clear the house of course, and then uh, start looking around and many, many of these uh drug homes had little altars, shrine set up, if you will, a little table with with candles burning and Uh things of that nature, and religious statues. And I was always intrigued about this kind of stuff. So I remember one time actually looking at at this altar, studying it, and uh, I saw a statue of Jesus Christ, and right behind the statue of Jesus Christ was a a baggie containing several balloons of heroin. Uh, So found that, and then, of course, laid the uh, person under arrest. I asked the person why why did you have the heroine behind Jesus Christ? And her response was, Well, he's supposed to protect me from you. Well, you know, that, that struck me. That struck me. And then of course I had to comment, uh, you know, my smart <laughs> sarcastic comment. Well, you know it didn't work. Well then this is how she responded and I'll never forget this. Her response was, Yes, I guess I need to pray harder. So that told me right off the bat that their belief in in, in the power of, of prayer, and in in the power of prayer protecting them from law enforcement is unconditional. It's embedded in their soul, their hearts, their minds. It's ongoing, and no matter what happened to them, it's uh, it's unconditional. So that intrigued me back then. And then I remember uh, another thing that did that was uh, we hit the house of another heroin dealer. With a bruja and a lot of your bruja, excuse me, a lot of your listeners may not know what a bruja is, but a bruja is a witch. And I talk about the witches, uh, the brujas and, and the curanderos, the healers in my class when I talk about the Mexican cartels uh, because the Mexican cartels use them and they'll actually use them to put hexes on, on police officers. Well anyway, getting back to this case, i go up to a similar table as I described earlier. And I see the same thing, prayer candle statues. And I, I see a couple of voodoo dolls. i never seen voodoo dolls in person. Uh, and I look at the voodoo dolls and they got pins uh, stuck through uh, pieces of paper with writing on the paper into the doll. Mm-hmm. Now, my partner, big, tall guy Joe, didn't like the, any of this stuff. Even the regular, you know, legitimate prayer candle, he wanted to get close to it. And I said, come on, Joe, check this out, man. You saw where they found the, I found heroin here. He said, No, man, I don't believe in that, uh, but I'm I don't believe in that, but just in case I don't want to get pulled. So you know, that kind of <laughs> yeah. stuff. So anyway, I yeah I I pick up a, I pick up a voodoo doll and, and, and I go, holy shit, Joe. He goes what? And I go, your name's on this shit. And he goes, Shut up, put that down. That's that's not funny. And uh so I, I go, no man, I'm serious. So I walked towards him and I showed it to him. And man, I can see that it really affected him. You know, the big tall guy and I never seen him so scared. And then uh, and I felt for him. We're we were good friends, you know, uh he was my partner and I thought how it affected him. So I did probably what any cop or you guys in, in DEA would have done. I I laughed. <laughs> yeah, I sure. laughed at him. <laughs> you know that's what that's what we do with cops, right? Yeah. And I even told him, "Hey, you're eating lunch by yourself today, man. I don't want you any. I don't even want you in my car today." uh so anyway i'm laughing i put it down and i pick up the second one and i tell them hey this is not funny this isn't funny anymore man because my name was on there so <laughs> that's when i realized you know how, how what what they do and and I, I i teach that in my uh in my training when i'm training right. law enforcement officers because they're still they're still doing that larry they're still doing hexes on police officers and you know i'll ask the police officers hey how many of you are concerned if you would see your name on a voodoo doll or your name inside a cow's tongue or your name underneath a, uh, on a piece of paper, underneath a statue, something worth it. And a lot of officers say, no, I want, I want. to go, well, you should be concerned. And they look at me strange and, why are you saying that? Well, I'm not talking about being concerned about the supernatural aspect of any type of a hex or spell. My concern is to is is to what extent will they go to make the hex come true? Right. Especially in today's time with all the anti-police stuff, I I tell these officers you need to be aware of your surroundings. You be sure you're not being followed home, followed from the office. You're not under surveillance. You know that kind of stuff. I'm not trying sure. to make them paranoid. They're trying to make them safer uh, and, and, and more careful. So anyway. Then then I just, you know, would encounter these more and more throughout my career working narcotics in El, in El Paso. And even as a marshal, uh, I remember one time in a courtroom, one of my guys saw somebody putting, like, some powder, uh, a spectator in the back of the courtroom, some powder and uh, chicken feathers on the floor doing a hex uh, for a favorable outcome in a court case for their for their relatives. So uh, this thing, you know, now back then, it was pretty much, Jesus Christ, uh, the Virgin Mary, and, mm-hmm. and a bunch of different Catholic saints. Now it changed a lot. Oh, we're still seeing Jesus. We're still seeing the Virgin Mary and a lot of Catholic saints, but now they've added to it. Uh, they've added Santa Muerte, they've, they've added Jesus Malverde, Santa so many different ones. So I, I spent a lot of time uh, training the officers on, on who the cartels and gangs pray to for protection from them.
0: So, with the um, it shows you how really dangerous the cartels are because they really do their homework. They do their own intelligence yes. gathering on, uh, on law enforcement. Um, and so, you know, yes. even back when I was working narcotics, uh, even as a, you know, undercover cop and then going to DEA, I always kept my head on a swivel, um, because they kept telling us. Good you yeah. got to know what's behind you mm-hmm. uh, for sure, especially right. when you leave the office. And, uh, you know, and, and the cartels are well known for doing counter surveillance. It's uh, it's a fact of life. I mean, right. I, I got exposed to it out in California and in some other places. But um, so anyways, I, I know you've testified um, in both state and federal courts as an expert witness uh, regarding uh, these, these uh, cartels. Tell us a little bit what they look for, have looked for on using you as an expert on these cartels for, uh, you know, these different uh, religious uh, statues and so on.
1: Well, they, what, what they're looking for, when we're talking about uh, prosecutors reaching out uh, to me to uh, to testify in, in, in court. Matter of fact, uh, before I took your phone call, I was on the phone. Uh, with an immigration uh, hearing officer out of Canada, and talking about a uh, an immigration case which I may testify on involving a, uh, a cartel member or a former cartel uh, member. So anyway, uh, those are the kind of situations. And as far as the uh, uh, the other cases, there multiple them or really all of them are, are drug cases, and they're usually mid to upper level uh, drug cases. And and those are going to be diff- they have been different cases where. The officer doing the investigation, uh, DEA, DEA task force officers doing the investigation uh, would encounter some of the patron saints that I talked about. Very often, some of the officers involved in the investigation had attended my training. They mentioned that to the prosecutor. So the prosecutor asked me to come and, and, and uh, testify about the different uh, icons, the pictures, the statues, the tattoos, prayer candles, uh, different things that they may have been uh, wearing and, and, and I think it's very important uh, for me to, to say this because when I'm teaching my class and, and I reiterate many times that all of the different patron saints, including Santa Muerte and Jesus Mambres, none of them are, are probable cause for search or arrest. They're meant to be, first and foremost, uh, red flags as far as uh, officer safety enhancements. That, that's what I want. And after that, let's see if it turns into an indi- indicator depending on what other information you have or what what else you see there at, at the scene. So I testified in state and, and uh, in federal court uh, in uh, Texas, I believe Arkansas, I believe South Carolina and uh, New Mexico, Albuquerque as well as uh, Dodge City, uh, Kansas uh, so far.
0: Yeah. It's, um, it's a very interesting uh very interesting understanding about the mindset uh, of the cartels because you're looking really at their mindset when you're talking about these patron saints or you know the protection from uh from law enforcement um so talk to us a little bit about uh i know you wrote some books uh talk to us a little bit about some books that you wrote
1: yeah, I wrote a, a couple of books, and actually I wrote those so many years ago, to be honest, with you. I'm not even sure if they're in print anymore, and they were uh, originally uh, meant as uh, college textbooks and uh, managing uh, covert uh, in, in investigations, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm actually writing a, a, a new book right now, and I want to say I'm probably around 60% complete, and I'm writing a book on everything that we've been talking about, uh, Larry. uh uh, the the cartels and and everything that they're involved in their, their culture, which includes their extracurricular activities. Uh, the cartels are here in the United States. You and I know that when when you and I were working the streets, we're working them here in the United States, and they, they've been here. The big difference now between now, between the time you and I were working and now is that there's more of them here, uh, without a doubt. And get ready, because more of them are coming. They're more powerful. Uh, they're more powerful now. So I'm writing a book on that. And, and, and when I do my training, the officers I tell him, look, you need, you need to focus on the Mexican cartel, not just when they have the drugs uh, or you're on a wire or anything like that or on a search warrant. You need to pay attention. They're here. So you need to pay attention to their extracurricular activities. And that's why I've done extensive research on their involvement or at least attendance to uh, cockpit. Mexican cartels and gangs love cockpit. And there are many, many cockfights that, that have, uh, are occurring here in the United States. Matter of fact, two weeks ago, maybe less than two weeks ago, in South Fulton, Georgia, uh, they took down a cockfight and they actually found about a meth lab at that cockfight, an actual meth lab where they were making methamphetamine, a Mexican cartel, and they found about 80 pounds of the finished product. And that's why I talk about the cockfights. I also talk about the horse races. They love horse races. And I'm not talking about going to the Kentucky Derby, although some do. I'm talking about them setting up their own private uh, horse races in the rural areas. And I attended one doing some Intel gathering for uh, uh, some cops out in uh, in Georgia last year, uh, Intel gathering, getting some license, plate numbers, video, stuff like that. So that's the kind of uh, research I, uh, I'm doing. And then I also talk about the Narco Corrido Concerts. The music of the cartel then i make it very clear that not everybody attending these concerts is a drug trafficker but hey if i'm a, I'm a cartel member and i'm i'm working out of dodge city kansas and uh groups coming that i like i'm going to be there and guess what i'm going to be at a vip table and that's what when, when i go to these concerts that's where i like to hang out and rub elbows with these guys as a matter of fact i'm going i'm going to one this saturday as a matter of fact uh, so i'm constantly doing the research on stuff so, so i think that's what we need to pay more attention to. Just like these, uh, we're talking about the Brujas and the Curanderos. Well, they have businesses throughout the United States. And again, most of the people that are running these locations are good, honest uh, people, most of them. And a lot of people, I would say most of the people that go visit them are, are people that want help with uh, uh, physical or spiritual issues. However, you have Mexican cartels that will go to them. And they'll have a a limpia or what's known as the cleansing performed on them or their or their uh, low vehicle, and and uh, just about a month ago, in uh, Georgia, who was been doing my class, called me where they did surveillance, followed a guy to one of these locations, and when he left, they got him stopped, and and he had about 20 pounds of mess meth, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. It, it. We need to we need to stay on the the heels of the Mexican cartel. We need to. We need to stay on them, not let them uh, catch their breath. And, and if every agency in every city would do this, then we're sending a message to them, the cartels and the gangs. Look, we're going to make it as difficult as possible for you to operate in our city because we're going to hit you with everything we've got. And, 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 and we're we're not going to let what's happening in Mexico happen over here. That's my concern right. because um, my concern is increasing shootouts and things of that nature involving the cartels. The cartels are already doing hits over here in, in the United States. They've been doing it for a while, right. and they're saying they're hit teams out here and they're hitting people. So I just don't want to see that get, get any any worse. And that, that's why I, I get excited of being able to talk to cops about the cartels.
0: Well, yeah, and as, as time goes on, uh, the Mexican cartels, they'll assimilate into the lifestyle of here in the U.S. Uh, and, and actually, they're they're now part of that fabric, just like uh, the Italian organized crime criminals, when they started uh, growing way back when, uh, you know, they tried to legitimatize their businesses. And then they were running unions and scams and and on and on. And I, I think the Mexican cartels are probably more powerful now than the, the, the mafia here in the U.S. because of the, the money that they have access to is just mind-boggling. And we're not talking millions. We're talking billions. Uh, more than some yeah. of the governments, especially in Mexico and Central America.
1: Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And and that's why these cartels are doing what they do. And it's all, all about uh, money. And, and I do a two-and-a-half-day class that's actually uh, sponsored by the Midwest County Drug Training Center. I have a contract with them. And I just did that class last week, virtual training in uh, in Iowa and uh and for any of your law enforcement listeners this training is free uh training is free all they got to do is go to the mctc. Uh, dot com and uh, look for my class and they have a lot of other good classes uh, as well and this training is, is free um but I, I i i encourage the officers to do that and i've got other trainings that are that are set up i'm sure i know we're going to talk about how to find out uh, at the end of this uh, presentation, but if I can continue on to talk a little bit about Mexico, I'm, uh, you know, I interviewed a a kidnapped victim uh, three weeks ago. He was kidnapped by, and I videotaped it. I'm I'm getting it edited right now, and he was kidnapped by the Mexican uh, cartels, held for five days. Now this kid. Was not a drug trafficker he was a good kid came from a good family and the reason they kidnapped him was because his family had money his family owned businesses and he'd leave in the nightclub one night and he's not paying attention he's texting while driving and then all of a sudden he gets blocked in they pull him out of the vehicle at, at gunpoint put him in a van take him the location threatening him uh every very, very often uh, threatening him that they were going to kill him well, eventually he was released after his family paid half a million dollars uh, in in ransom. This is what the cartels uh, do, yeah. uh, and that's what they're going to continue to do now. People, this uh, this issue about legalizing marijuana, you know, people have said legalize marijuana and the cartels go away. That's completely false, completely wrong. It's not about marijuana. It's not just about drugs. It's about criminal activity. The Mexican cartels are involved in extortion and kidnapping. They're tapping pipelines in in Mexico. And I got to tell you, people ask me, what is it going to take to change what's going on in Mexico? Well, you have to end one thing, and, and it's all tied to one word, and that one word is corruption. There is so much corruption at all levels in the Mexican government, unfortunately, right. that until that changes, nothing is going to change. This kidnap victim, when I asked him, basically, you know, do you see this changing? And he said, no. And I go, even if, if they legalize all the drugs in the U.S., no, it's not going to change. He said, you know, it's sad. I love Mexico. That's my country. But it's never going to change because of the corruption. Right. Uh, so it's
0: really a sad situation, but that just, it, you know, it, it, it is what it is. Sure. Well, I know um, having a lot of friends that were stationed in Colombia, uh, how the government of Colombia really took their country back. And that's, it has to happen in Mexico uh, for them to get their country back because the cartels are running the government, not the opposite way. Yeah. so until that changes uh until the mexican government uh decides to crack down on these cartels it's going to continue as the same old thing
1: That that's exactly right and and things won't change you know this president obrador came in saying well we're going to change it there is no more war we're going to not go after the cartel well he's living up to that but nothing then proved the cartels are in charge. Look at what happened in 2019 when they captured Ovidio Guzman, one of Chapo Guzman's sons. This was, uh, uh, you know, they had him in custody and, and, uh, uh, Ivan, uh, Chapa, uh, Ovidio's brother called for backup and a lot of, uh, you know, lower cartel members showed up and they forced the, uh, Mexican government to release them and, and the president, uh, ordered him released. And this is a black eye to the governor of Mexico and tells you who's in charge. Something like that, Larry, would never happen in the United States. I don't care what the situation uh, is. The cartels are out of control over there. And Obrador, instead of focusing on the cartel, he's attacking uh, DEA in the United States, saying that DEA agents are are, are corrupt and that they uh, fabricated evidence against that. Steve Weggles, who they released, was another story, by the way. The Justice and then Minister recently, he came. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And 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 he was corrupt. There's no doubt. I know an officer that uh, personally, a good friend of mine, involved in that investigation, and they were just uh, a, a sad state of affairs. A yeah. And there's so much, so many other uh, cases to talk about. But this guy Obrador is, and then recently he came out. You know how we're looking for Caro Quintero. He was uh, released right. uh, prematurely. Mm-hmm. We're looking for Caro Quintero and then Obrador had to come on and make a statement, hey, I agree with the uh the court releasing him. What kind of bull yeah. is that pisses me off? Yeah. So he's over here making comments uh more that are more positive toward the cartel than than uh, for law enforcement, Mexican and US law enforcement. So probably
0: tell this riles me up a little bit. No, no, I no, I mean, some people may not know that Carol Quintero was uh responsible for the death of uh DEA agent Enrique Kiki Camarena. And this has been going this has been a battle well that's been going on since uh nineteen eighty five or no nineteen eighty three when they captured and killed Camarena. So it's it's been going on for a long time and um, you know, people don't realize that we cannot get the cooperation sometimes of the Mexican government with even their own criminals that they protect, uh, which is the unfortunate situation that goes on every day.
1: Yeah, well, well just another another thing about that. Uh, Kate was Benfuego, the uh, defense minister, is that uh, not only did Obrador uh, badmouth DEA and accuse them of, of fabricating evidence, but uh, he actually violated a treaty between the u s. and mexico by by releasing evidence uh, on on that investigation. and And uh, our government is is not holding him uh, responsible uh, right. for that. And then, He's making it. Uh, he removed a lot of dipl- diplomatic immunity for our DEA agents, right. mm-hmm. and they made it more difficult for investigations to occur even begin in the United States. Because every any time any Mexican law enforcement officer get information from any U.S. law enforcement officer, they got to run that up the chain. Right. Well, that's ridiculous. How many informants are going to be uh, killed? How many cases are going to be ruined? It's just it's just incredible. So, uh, Obrador is not with us. Obrador is against us. And it's very, very unfortunate. And I feel bad for the good people of Mexico because overwhelmingly, most of the people in Mexico are good and they're tired and they're fed up and they need help.
0: Yeah. And we have a lot of big cities like that here in the United States where a lot of people are fed up with the shootings and crimes that right. go on every day. And we have a lot of good oh, people. Absolutely. We have a lot of good people that live in the inner cities. Uh, I happen to work right. some of them. And the problem is they're stuck in dealing with these criminals every day because the political spectrum sort of now has changed and not putting these guys in prison where they truly belong. And and, and it's the same in Mexico. So let me ask you this now. So I know you're doing some outstanding training throughout the country and educating our law enforcement officers. So Robert, how do we get in touch with you or how does a law enforcement agency or anyone that's interested in your training?
1: Okay, well, uh, my, my training on Mexican cartels is specific to law enforcement officers. However, I can tweak it for a general audience, was uh, not involving law enforcement. I can certainly do that for law enforcement officers. My training consists of sensitive investigations, even some ongoing investigations. So you can see why I, I limit it to law enforcement and, and military, uh, sure. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, now as far as getting a, a hold of me, uh, a couple of things. I have a website. That website is robertalmonte.com. robertalmontealtogether.com. So it's robertalmonte.com, and I have a listing of my uh, classes uh, that are set up right now. We're gonna. Uh, we're always updating it. And then uh, my email is robert at robertalmonte.com altogether. Robert at robertalmonte.com.
0: And that's A L. M-O-N-T-E.
1: That's it. That is uh, exactly it. And again, I can tailor uh, my training, my presentation to, uh, to any group. Uh, as I mentioned, I do a two and a half day class on the cartel talking about anything and everything with, about them. But I also can tailor, tailor my presentation to, uh, to do a, uh, a talk at a luncheon or something like that.
0: Well, Robert, listen, it's been an honor. It's uh, been educational. And I appreciate you taking the time to come on our podcast.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, I've enjoyed it. And uh, and it's been my honor. It really, it really has. And I appreciate the opportunity to, to share with your listeners what's going on with the, with the Mexican cartels and, and talk about my training as well. Thank you, Larry. Forletta
0: investigates. Thank you for listening to Forletta Investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCISLLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to FCISLLC.com.